0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch, London. For more information and resources, please go to christchurchlondon.org. Thanks for that, Joseph. Let us lower expectations right now, shall we? <laughs> Listen to that one if you want. It's not going to be today. Um, so, greetings from the South Service. I bring you great tidings of great joy. We've had a baby born. Literally had a baby born this last week, Uh, Bertie Cardwell. You might not care about that. We cared about that this morning. Um, But it is great to be with you. We are really looking forward to being with you, all of us, next week for the carol services. Um, A highlight of the year, definitely a highlight of the year for us. Rich Butt and the team have just been working behind the scenes. The music is going to be amazing, I can guarantee you that. We have Andy Tilsley talking about one of his favourite topics ever, Christmas. Hopefully he'll be talking about Jesus as well as Santa. We can only hope. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's going to be great. and I'm sure as uh, people have said already, this is just the easiest event to bring your friends to. If you've ever wanted your friends to kind of know what you get up to, ever thought, hey, I'd really like you to invite you to church, next week is the easiest thing to do that to. No one ever got offended by being invited to a carol service. Actually, many of your friends are probably looking for carol services right now. And other. People love to sing carols, so just get a flyer, invite them along, and the South Service will be with you next week to do that. Um, so, before we move into kind of Christmas season proper, um, you can see I'm wearing a Christmas outfit right now, obviously in the season of Advent, waiting in the darkness for the light to come. This is my Christmas outfit. Um, before we move into Christmas proper, um, we are going to be finishing off our current uh, sermon series. We've been teaching through the life of Abraham for this term, and it is my privilege and joy to finish this one for you. So, if you can remember all the way back first week, Andy Tilsley talked about. Um, Abraham's first encounter with God. So God kind of just shows up out of the blue. He says to Abraham, I want you to leave everything that you know. Leave your family, your friends, the place you grew up. Leave your land and come and follow me. And do you remember the reason that he gave for that? He didn't say, because I am a holy God and I demand you worship me. He says, because I want to bless you. I want to bless you and bless you and bless you and through you bless the whole of the world. That has always been, <clears throat> excuse me, Ben? That has always been God's message to us. God always comes and says, I love you. I want to bless you and bless you, the whole world through you. So God appears to Abraham and he says, I will provide everything you need for a life of true greatness, a life of true flourishing a life that will impact upon generations to come, you just need to trust me. You need to follow me. You need to put all of your faith in me, more faith in me than anything else in your life. And God says the same thing to us. He says, I love you, I am for you, I want to bless you. You just need to trust me. Put all of your faith in me, more faith in me than anything else in your life, and blessing will flow to you and flow through you. But people have always had a hard time believing that, haven't they? Just need to look, very first story in the Bible, Adam and Eve, living in this kind of perfect world, living in literal paradise with God. And this thought comes to them, does God really love you? Does he really have your best interests at heart? It sounds like he's holding out on you. Maybe you would be better off doing life on your own without God. So this kind of poisonous lie comes to them. Instead of kind of rejecting that, they believe it. And they think, actually, yeah, maybe life as God would be better than life with God and living life for God. And so they choose this kind of completely different path. And the scriptures show how pain and suffering and evil kind of enters into God's good creation at this point. And then God has always been trying to come back to people saying, no, no, no. I love you. I love you. I want to bless you. Just trust me. I want to love you. Just trust me. And he does that over and over. does that with us. And we see with Abraham, this is exactly what he does again. comes to Abraham and says, I want to bless you, bless you, bless you. And we see that over half a century, this is what he does. For over 50 years, God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And he blesses him financially. Abraham becomes a very wealthy man. He blesses him with victories over his enemies, able, enables him to come and rescue Lot. And he uh, blesses him with this kind of land, walks him around this land, says, your, your people, your descendants are going to inherit this land. He gives him this amazing gift of circumcision, which I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound like such a gift. Um, but this was kind of this, symbol, this symbolic thing, a symbol that Abraham and his descendants carried within their body, that God was with them, that he was their God, they were his people. I don't know, I think still probably would have preferred a tattoo than circumcision, but he gives him this gift. And then obviously, to top it all off, he gives him Isaac, this miracle baby in his old age. After years and years of waiting for a descendant, he gives him Isaac. So God has shown him over and over and over that he loved him, that he was for him, that he wanted to bless him. But then God asks something of Abraham that tests his devotion to God tests his faith in God to the limit, and that is the story that we're going to read today. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 22. If you have a Bible, if you don't, don't worry. The words will come up behind me. Okay, so chapter 22, verse 1. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Just to say at this point that the commentaries don't agree on actually how old Isaac is during this whole story. So he was at the very least 14 years old, but many of the commentaries actually put him much older than that. Um, in the next chapter, we see um, his mother Sarah dying, and he was kind of 37 at that point. So if this happened directly before that, he's a grown man. But kind of however old he was, um, there's whatever age he was, it's clear that there's no way that Abraham, a man of over 100 years old, could have bound Isaac unless Isaac allowed himself to be bound. So there's no account of a struggle here. There's no account even of Isaac pleading for his life. And many of the Jewish commentaries on this highlight the willingness of Isaac to be sacrificed. So it's not just about Abraham's faith being tested. It's about Isaac's faith being tested as well. In fact, one of the Jewish writers explains that passage we just read of kind of Abraham and Isaac talking about the lamb as Isaac's way of letting his father know that he knows what is coming. And when it says the two of them went on together, the literal translation for that is the two of them journeyed as one. This kind of beautiful image of father and son in step with one another, both going up, knowing what the sacrifice was going to mean. So here you have a loving father ready to sacrifice his beloved son. All because of his faith in his God. And you have a loving son ready to be sacrificed. Again, because of faith in God. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. What a story. This story is probably actually the most well-known, most famous story in all of religious literature. It forms part of Islamic faith, um, the Judaistic faith, and Christian faith, all point back to kind of this one event and Abraham as the father of faith. But it's clear that we're going to have to do a little bit of work to work out just what the heck is going on here. Because on the surface, this just looks horrifying, doesn't it? it looks absolutely terrifying. The story seems to play right into the hands of those who would say that the Old Testament God, the God in the Old Testament, is just this kind of angry, vengeful, bloodthirsty, barbaric monster. And that his followers just kind of follow him blindly, willing to do anything that he says, even if that's wrong or immoral. Commentators have literally been wrestling with this passage for thousands of years, trying to work out what is going on. So I think let's start by recognizing that we here are separated from the events of the story by this huge distance. So distance of time, thousands of years, distance of geography, completely different place of the world, and a massive difference in culture, which obviously affects the way that we read and think about this. So we're going to have to work a little bit to kind of put ourselves into Abraham's shoes and to see these events through his eyes and work out what was he thinking and feeling when this happened. So firstly, let's take a quick look at the whole area of sacrifice. So sacrifices, whether they were animal sacrifices or whether they're kind of wheat and grain sacrifices, whatever they were, they formed a huge part of Israelite worship and actually worship in the whole of the ancient world. But really, they were nothing more sinister than a way for a person to give a gift to their God. In a way, you could kind of say that they were like a husband giving his wife a bunch of flowers. Now, in our culture, that is kind of perfectly normal. We understand what that means. If you weren't raised in this culture and you look from the outside in, it is a little strange, isn't it, that we husbands give our wives dead flowers as symbols of our ongoing love. But we within the culture. It makes perfect sense to us. And in Abraham's culture, this kind of whole idea of sacrifice made perfect sense. It was a way of giving a gift to God. And so just like a husband giving his wife some flowers, they could communicate a range of different things. They could communicate, I love you, or thank you, or I appreciate you. Or maybe even, I'm sorry, please forgive me. They could even communicate, hey, I'm preaching on giving flowers to wives on a Sunday, so it would be a little strange if I didn't buy you flowers this week. not saying that happened. <laughs> It did. Um, Anyway, I give flowers for other reasons as well. Um, But whatever, at the heart of kind of this gift giving, sacrifices were about relationship at the heart of them. They were about sometimes restoring broken relationship, other times deepening relationship, but all about keeping the relationship going. Just like kind of giving of flowers, they were symbolic. There was kind of no magic involved in them. Actually, they didn't in and of themselves. Do anything. It was a symbol, a gesture, an expression of what the giver was feeling towards the one giving. A, they were giving a gift to. And the reason that burning played such an important part in giving of the sacrifices is how else do you give a physical gift to an invisible God? How do you bridge this gap between us here on earth and God in the heavens, which is where they believed God was? Well, you burn it. You kind of set it on fire, and in the flames, the gift kind of rises up to God, this symbol of now I had a gift, I no longer had a gift, the gift is gone, and it has gone to God. So there's nothing kind of sinister, it's just a way of giving a gift to God. The um, Hebrew translation of burnt offering is that which goes up. So a sacrifice was that which goes up to God as a gift. And we also need to recognize that Abraham came from a culture, was surrounded by cultures, where child sacrifice formed a normal, if not horrific, part of their worship, of their gift-giving. And especially giving of the precious firstborn son was very common. In order to show their complete devotion to their gods, Abraham's neighbors would give the things that were most important to them, their children. And Abraham's knowledge of God at this point is still kind of being deconstructed and then reconstructed. We have to remember that Abraham never went to church. He didn't have the scriptures, didn't have the Old Testament, didn't have other people saying, hey, this is what God is like. This is what God wants us to do. He's trying to kind of work all of this out. As God is in relationship with him, he's a pioneer of the faith in that sense. And so what he thinks God requires of him is still very much mixed up with what he thought the kind of the other gods that he knew about required of their followers. So the command to sacrifice Isaac, although rightly shocking to us, it should shock us. We should read read this and think, "This is not good. This is not on." We have to remember we come kind of after thousands of years of the Judeo-Christian ethic, kind of being kind of imbibed in culture, and so we look upon this with very different eyes. For Abraham, he wouldn't have seen anything shocking in this. Not saying that he would have like jumped for joy at the opportunity to do this, but he wouldn't have thought this was something that God couldn't or shouldn't ask from him. He wouldn't, this, wouldn't have thought this was immoral or wrong for God to ask. It was kind of out, outside of the bounds of their relationship. And he wouldn't have thought that he was wrong or immoral in sacrificing Isaac. Now, we know because we've read to the end of the story that actually God never intended for him to go through with it. He never intended for Isaac to be killed. And actually, most commentaries that I read on this agree that this was a way for God to subvert this whole practice, so he was basically saying, you may have heard other gods requiring this from your followers. That is not me. I do not require this. I do not want this. And actually, you see, when God gives the law through Moses later on to Abraham's descendants, to the Israelites, he, he like outlaws it. He forbids it. And like many of the prophets talk about what a horror this kind of act is. So we have God kind of subverting this. He never wanted Abraham to go through with it. This is a test of Abraham's heart. Kind of in the cultural standard of ultimate devotion, Abraham knew that his neighbors were so devoted to their gods that they would give the firstborn child. And God was saying, are you that devoted to me? Will you give Isaac back to me? Obviously, this is not just about devotion, it's about faith. Isaac is the son of promise through which the promise was going to come. In order for God to turn Abraham into this nation that would bless the world, to become a nation, he needed descendants. To have descendants, he needed Isaac to have children. So actually, sacrificing Isaac was a massive step of faith in God's ability also to bring about the promise even if Isaac was dead. But Abraham had seen kind of this happen before. He'd seen God bring life out of death. He'd seen him create life in the barren womb of his 90-year-old wife. He knew that God could do things like this. And actually, when we read in verse 5, we see glimpses of what he might have been thinking. So he says, stay here. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Then we will come back to you. Not I will come back to you. We will come back to you. And in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we kind of get an insight into what he might have been thinking. Abraham, it says, considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this shows not only was he utterly devoted to God, not only was he willing to give the thing that he loved most in the world, but he had this amazing faith that even if he did that, God was able to fulfill his promises. So of all the stories that we have looked at Abraham's life, this one, more than any other, just shows how much he loved and trusted in God. Why he became the father of faith. I mean, he couldn't have passed this test any better, could he? God says, do this. The very next morning he gets up, he goes out. He's willing to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham's love for God was so great, anything would be given to him. Just like the songs we were singing this morning, willing to give anything to him, even the life of his son. And his faith in him was so great, he believed he could even bring promise through death. I mean, this is just an outstanding example of faith, isn't it? Outstanding example. If you're anything like me, you read this, and like, your main thought is this, I just don't know if I could do that. My faith is not that big. I just don't know if I could do it. I couldn't do it. Like This is the standard of Abraham, and this is me. We read it, and we can just think, man, we just don't live up to that. So it can make us think, well, better try harder. Better try and muster up some more faith. Better try and love God more. Better really get to work. If that's what God requires, we've got a lot of work to do. And there's a danger in reading the Bible that way. And reading it just kind of horizontally. Is reading the Bible is just of stories of good people we need to act like and bad people we shouldn't act like. There's a danger when we read the Bible that way. That we come away thinking everything rests on us. Rests upon our effort. Rests upon our faith. Our faithfulness. To God. But actually, that is not the primary reason that this story is in Scripture. It is not here as a morality tale. It is not here uh, to to say, we just need to be more like Abraham. Come on, everyone, let's be more like Abraham. See, it's here because it's history, it really happened, but it's also here because it's symbolic. It points to something else that was to come. And that is this. Centuries later another father and another son would walk as one up into those very same mountain ranges, utterly devoted, utterly committed, utterly knowing what was going to happen when they got to the top. But this time, there would be no substitute. The beloved son, just like Isaac, would also have wood laid upon his back, and he would carry that wood up to the top of the mountain, and he would be laid upon it. And as the father looked on, full of love, heartbreaking at the sacrifice his son was willing to give, we see the son dying. There was no substitute. He died. He absorbed into his body all of the pain and the sin and the suffering and the evil and the death, absorbing it all into himself so that when he was destroyed, it was destroyed along with him. The son willingly sacrificed his life, to mean that the power of sin and death was broken over God's good creation. And if Abraham had been standing there that day looking upon Jesus as he gave up his life, he would have returned to the Father and he would have taken the words that God had spoken to him, he would have turned them around and he would have said, now I know. Now I know that you love me because you were willing to give up your life for me. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us once and for all that our relationship with God is not primarily based upon our faithfulness to him. It's not based upon the gifts that we give to him. It's not kept going by our gifts to him. It was started and it is sustained because of his gift of life to us. If God loves us, so much that he will give his only son for us. We can be sure in his devotion to us, in his faithfulness to us. And so just like Abraham, our faith in God flows out of our, um, God's faithfulness to us. We don't start it, we don't sustain it, it flows out of it. So as we experience this love, this faithfulness displayed in definitely the death of Jesus, but also day to day, as we experience it day to day, then a life of faith and faithfulness just kind of flows out of us. See, God is always the pursuer. He is always the initiator. If there is a gift that needs to be given in order to keep the relationship going, in order to restore the relationship, in order to deepen the relationship, God himself will give it. A few years ago now, um, Jacks, my wife, was working in advertising. Um, she'd done that from university, um, she was doing pretty well, she'd been headhunted three times, one of those times enabled us to move to London, so in the words of Ron Burgundy, she was a pretty big deal, you know, people knew her. Um, but she was thinking how actually, she, like this, thinking about this kind of huge career change, working instead with vulnerable families. And we'd kind of been thinking and talking and praying about this for a while, and we thought, we just need to make a decision on this, this can't go on indefinitely. Um, now there was some kind of big... Uh, things to think about, firstly, moving from the private sector to the public sector, often not very well paid. So there's like a pay cut um, was imminent, but also we were trying to get pregnant at the time. And if she moved before that she was there long enough, then like maternity pay would be out the window. So like lots of financial considerations amongst everything else with this. But we thought we just need to work this out. So we gave ourselves two weeks to pray and fast. Didn't, pray for, uh, didn't fast for two weeks, just to make that clear. Fasted a little bit, prayed a lot more. Um, So during that two weeks, and actually we were listening to this song pretty much on repeat. So a song recorded by Kim Walker, um, Oh How He Loves Us. The chorus is really simple, just over and over. Oh how he loves us. Oh how he loves us. Oh how he loves us. We listened to that song on repeat for two weeks. And at the end of that two weeks, we didn't have kind of this clear leading from God. God saying, do this or do that. But we just had this overwhelming sense that God loved us that he was for us, that he wanted to bless us, that whatever decision we made, he would be with us in that. And so at the end of that two weeks, we decided that Jax would hand in a notice. So worked out three-month notice, didn't find a job. Another four months looking for work, didn't find a job. So seven months between that decision for her to leave and her finding a job in the field that she wanted. But all through that time, we just had this kind of experience, this understanding, as Lars was talking about last week, kind of rested back. God's got us. It's okay. He loves us. He wants to bless us. Whatever happens, it's going to be fine. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul uses this exact line of reasoning to encourage the church in Rome. Now, the, the church of, in Rome had been going through a lot, to put it mildly. I mean, it had been tough going for them. Um, and so they had like kind of these questions around faith like if all this stuff is happening just remember from like history at school all the stuff that was going on to the Christians in Rome if all this stuff was happening to us like where is God can we really trust that God is for us that he loves us that he wants to bless us and this is what our Paul's encouragement to them was he said what then shall we say in response to these things if God is for us who can be against us He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul is directly referencing Genesis 22 here. He's saying that if, like Abraham, God didn't spare his only son, then we can be sure, we can know how devoted he is to us. And if he was willing to give his son greatest cost, Obviously, he's going to give us everything else we need, graciously give us everything else we need. Now, we do have to be a little bit careful here because we can hear that. You can trust in God to provide everything you need and mistake it for. You can trust in God to provide everything that you want. And often, in my experience, these two things, whilst sometimes can be the same thing, often they are not. The promise of God isn't that in this life we will all be healthy and we'll all be safe and we'll all be prosperous and we'll all have completely fulfilling relationships with absolutely no stress. And we'll all of us find that perfect job that perfectly matches kind of our calling and our gifting and our passions and our experience. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God can't do that, that he won't do that. He does do that. I've seen it. But what I'm saying is that God hasn't promised that everyone who follows him will have the life that they thought that they would have. Because if that is the promise, there are millions of Christians throughout history. Millions of Christians alive today around the world. Christians in this room who should be demanding their money back. I was at uh, the International Justice Mission prayer gathering a couple of weeks ago. So like Joseph said, International Justice Mission, this great organization that is fighting on behalf of the global poor. Fighting for justice. And once a year they gather all of their supporters I'm um, in the UK for a day of prayer. And so we're at St. Paul's Hammersmith spent the whole day praying into different stuff that they were doing around the world. And so we were hearing about their work in India, freeing slaves, modern-day slaves from brick factories and things like that. We're hearing about their work in, kind of, um, in Latin America and Asia, where they're freeing children out of the sex industry. We're hearing about uh, the work in Uganda, where they're helping widows who've had their land grabbed from them after their husband's death, fighting back against that. Hearing in Kenya how they're fighting against police corruption, Actually, this year, um, they're fighting this police corruption case, and um, one of their colleagues, who's a lawyer and their client who's bringing the case against the police, and their taxi driver, they'd been to court, and that, on the way back from court, they were kidnapped, tortured for three days and then killed in order to silence them. So as you can imagine, this is like a heavy day. Like there's a lot of stuff going on. It's a heavy, hard day. We're praying for God to break through. But that's obviously nothing compared to actually living through this. Personally, if you and the people you love are experiencing this day to day, you can imagine kind of the strain that puts on your relationship with God and how can you believe in a good and loving God with all of this going on? The scriptures teach us that the promise of a life with no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more sickness, no more tears is a very real promise for us. It's a very real promise. But the promise of that in its entirety is for the next life, not for this one. And as as as, however much we're trying to work to bring kind of the kingdom into this, so theologians, theologians talk about the kingdom being now and not yet, so the rule and reign of Jesus being now and not yet, it will one day be fully this and everything evil will be stamped out and we kind of get to bring some of that into the now, but actually we don't see all of that right now. And you just... As much as we in the West think that we have kind of a God-given right to never suffer, we enclose ourselves in this bubble and shut ourselves off from the rest of the world, no, we shouldn't suffer hardship. Actually, that's not the message of the Scriptures. Just read it on a bit in Romans, and you'll see that even though Paul has just said to them that God will graciously give you all things, that apparently doesn't include escape from trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, evil powers, or even death. I mean, thanks, Paul. I mean, how is that encouraging? You're saying that all of these things can still happen to us whilst being in relationship with God. You're, promising, you're not promising that any of those will be stopped for us right now. Well, what are you promising us then? Well, God is promising us something even greater than escape from all of that. He is promising us life with him. He's promising us a relationship with the source of all life and all joy. He has promised to always be with us. He has promised us that there is nothing in the whole of creation that can separate us from him. Nothing in our past, nothing in our future, no evil powers, not even death, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He has promised us that knowing and experiencing that love and resting back, into God's faithfulness to us, will turn us into wholehearted, courageous, kind of life-overflowing people who are able to battle and fight and even suffer sorrow and sickness and death as we help to bring God's light into the dark places, as we help to bring his joy into places of sorrow, as we help to bring his hope into places of despair. He has promised that as we put our faith in him, our faith in His faithfulness, that He will give us everything that we need, every spiritual resource needed, every emotional resource needed, every physical, practical resource needed in order to be a blessing to the world that we are in, in order to become people that stand up on behalf of the poor and the broken and the vulnerable in the face of the strong and the powerful, and able to be people that bring order into chaos, to bring life and beauty into ugliness, able to create community where there is just loneliness and isolation, able to bring healing where there is brokenness and pain, and able to bring freedom where there is addiction and slavery. In other words, God has promised to give us everything we need. He has promised to bless us and bless us and bless us in order that we might bless the world, in order that the blessing might flow into us and through us. That is the promise of God being provider. I can have the band back, please? So in a moment, we are just going to respond to that. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to worship this God. But before we do that, I just want us just to take a moment to think, where is it in our lives that we feel that God has called us to bring a blessing. Where is it in our lives? Where is the place that he's put us that he wants to see blessing flow through? Blessing for the common good. It may in your work, be in your workplace. That may be kind of the sphere where you think, this is how I bring good into the world. It may be in your family, in your relationships. It may be in your neighborhood. It may be anywhere. But I just want us to take a moment to think, if that is where I am to bring blessing, what is it that I need to do that? We're just going to take a moment to ask God for that. To ask God to provide everything we need in order to be a blessing. Now for some of us, we may be going through a hard time. Actually, the thing that we need is kind of, it's healing. The thing that we need is to know God close. It may be actually, as I've been speaking today, the idea of a God as a loving provider is just kind of completely out of the realms of your thinking. It may be that you just need to spend this time and say, God, if you are real, If you are really a loving provider, make yourself real to me. Reveal yourself to me. But for other of us, it may be that we have things. When I said to be a blessing, you know exactly what that was. You may have challenges in your life right now. How could I possibly bring a blessing in this way? I'm just me. I'm just small, insignificant. How can I possibly do this? Pray that the God of heaven, with all the resources of heaven, would bless you and provide for you. So let's just take a moment to do that. The band's just going to play very quietly. Just take a moment to ask God to provide, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll stand and worship. Father God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you come to us time and time again saying I love you, I am for you, I want to bless you. I thank you that a life with you, Lord, whilst not free from sorrow and trouble, Lord, it is just so fulfilling, so amazing to walk this with you and we thank you, just as we we're remembering early on today, Jesus sacrificing his life for us. I thank you that we can look back up on the cross and know once and for all that you love us so much that you would have given your only son for us, so devoted to us, so faithful to us. And Father, I pray for each one of us in this room, Lord, as we're thinking about how to pass that blessing on, how to be a blessing to the world around us. I pray that you would provide Miraculously provide, provide spiritual resources, physical resources, emotional resources in order that we might be a blessing. We talk a lot here about how we want uh, to be for the cultural, social, and spiritual renewal of the city, joining that in London. Lord, we know that by ourselves we can't do that, but we look to you, God, our provider, to provide everything we need to do that, to bring light into the darkness. Father, I pray that you would cause our faith in you to rise. That As we think again about your faithfulness to us, that our faith as response would rise. And Father, I pray that as we again gather to worship you, to sing songs of our devotion to you, Lord, that you would impress upon us again your love for us, that we would rest in that love. Father God, thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, let's worship. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org